Well, I am David. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm on staff. I haven't been here in a while. Uh, last time I was here was four or five weeks ago, something like that. And uh, we have a couple other churches where I also spend time at on a Sunday morning. But I took a trip. I needed a vacation. And so we went out to uh, the vacation spot of San Francisco, California. Anybody been to San Fran? San Fran. It was a cool place. I enjoyed it. Uh, but it's good to be home. Can I say it that way too? I loved it. And it was good that the vacation came to an end. Uh, but something cool about San Francisco, I didn't know. I'd never been to San Fran uh, or really traveled along the West Coast like this. But San Francisco has some pretty awesome qualities to it. One of them behind, as you can see, is just the, the Golden Gate Bridge, which was beautiful. But like there's, there's history in San Francisco. I'm not going to lie. When I was here looking at the bridge, I was looking for the Full House family that was sitting down kind of off the hill having a little picnic. I, totally straight with you, I have no idea where they filmed that because there's no place to do that, at least where we were. So seeing that, keeping my eye out for Mrs. Doubtfire, anybody else? There's the San Fran movie. Um, but here's something else that's cool about San Francisco is it's actually a major port for our country. There's a ton of commerce and shipments that come in on these big cargo ships that happens in the place of San Francisco, but even more than San Francisco, uh, it is a place and a hub for culture for entertainment, for food. I mean, there, there are so many people in the city of San Francisco that this is, this is like a big place. There's a lot happening and a lot going on. Here's why I tell you all of this about San Francisco uh, is we are doing a series right now. We're working through, we're on week number two uh, called Road Trip. We're just taking a road trip, and just like I took a road trip out in San Francisco and a couple other places in California, we're doing the same thing. We're approaching the same model in Scripture. We're looking at some letters that Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to different churches in the area, and we're just stopping at each one every single week. So last week, we talked about Galatians. This week, we're talking about the book of Ephesians. So this is Ephesus. Ephesus was a real place uh, in Scripture, and it is still, it's in modern-day Turkey. You can visit some of the ruins of Ephesus. Uh, but if I asked you this question, and if you were being honest in your answer, uh, if I said, how many of you picture Ephesus as being like a tiny little podunk, you know, goats and sheep all over the place type of town? How many of you would say that's kind of my perception of Ephesus? It's like this little farm community that Paul was writing to. The rest of you not raising your hands, I'm assuming you're probably just lying. So we're going to move on from that. But Ephesus, as you can probably tell by the picture behind me, uh, Ephesus was a hub for culture. It was a hub for commerce. It was a hub for business. It was a hub for people and government and learning and education. And so this is actually like the remnants. This was a library. The third largest library of the Roman Empire was found in Ephesus. I mean, it was a huge place that just had a lot going on. Here's one more cool photo that I love. This is their theater and how a lot of scholars and archaeologists and whatever they're called, um, how they determine sizes of particular cities is they found that they can actually estimate a city's population based on the size of their theater because the theaters where it all happened. This is where public announcements would be made. This is where government officials would speak to the people. This is where theater would take place and entertainment. This is where it would be. So this theater, just to give you an idea of how expansive it is in the city of Ephesus, seats 25,000 people. Can you imagine building a structure that seats 25,000 people without one form of modern day construction equipment? 
Can you just think about and marvel at that for a second? But, but 25,000, how scholars would estimate the size of a city is they would say the theater would probably seat about 10% of the population of the city, which means Ephesus was not a city of a bunch of goats and sheep, but a buzzing metropolis of probably a quarter million people at the time. This was a big city with lots going on. It was also a port city. So there were people in and out, different people from different countries and neighboring regions. This was a place where everything happened and it was the hub for culture. And so what we're diving into today is a letter that Paul wrote, but you need to understand the context in which Paul wrote this letter. In Acts 19, uh, Paul, as he was uh, in the city, he actually made a stop in Ephesus, spent a couple years there. And so he would go around and he would preach and he would teach the people and he would lead them to understand what a relationship with Jesus looked like, what it meant, how it changed. And so Paul and the Holy Spirit was using Paul in such a powerful way that even people would write and they would say, even like blankets and handkerchiefs and towels that Paul would touch, if they touched sick or lame or handicapped people, they would actually be healed of their diseases. Paul's effect was so pronounced, so powerful that the people in the city were paying attention. So one other part of Ephesus that you need to know or understand is Ephesus was a community based on and founded upon worship of a god named Artemis. And Artemis, the reason this is important is because this was a very image-based, performance-driven, behavior modification type culture in which you lived in a way in hopes that you would please the god Artemis. The people loved Artemis. They praised Artemis. But even more importantly, people built their livelihoods on worship of Artemis. What they would do is they would build sculptures, idols, and they would sell these idols, these very ornate, intricate idols. They would sell it to the people with the message and understanding of you can buy this expensive idol and then receive some sort of hope that Artemis would be pleased or proud of you, that you have an idol of her in your home. So it was a very pervasive type of society, but businessmen, smart businessmen, figured out how to produce these idols in large quantities, so much so that they got rich off of it. They got rich. And so when Paul came in and he starts preaching the gospel message, what he would say is, Artemis isn't a god. She's not real at all. You don't have to buy some sort of favor. You can actually have this thing called grace in a relationship with Jesus. You can find that and find freedom in a relationship with Jesus that doesn't cost you anything. It's just free. And so people start coming to faith in Jesus. People who are practicing witchcraft actually literally brought their scrolls that they would study and learn how to do witchcraft. They would bring it out into the city center and they would set fire to it and burn hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of materials. And they would do it and say, I thought this was freedom. But this was enslaving me. I have found freedom in Jesus. And so there's a man in Ephesus who started getting, getting mad because he'd gotten very wealthy by selling idols to Artemis. And so Paul, he heard Paul claiming this message of Jesus and said that Artemis isn't even a real God. And his business model was threatened. And so he starts calling out to his friends and calling out to his neighbors and starts stirring people up so much so that it said in a short amount of time, the whole city was in uproar and they all filed 
over to the theater in which they're yelling and they're screaming and they're saying, Paul, you, we should kill him because he, he's just ruining our culture. This is wrong. This is false. He's hurting, catch it, our bottom line. And so Paul, this is one of the reasons I love the Apostle Paul. Paul sees this riot ensuing. It's literally labeled as a riot in Scripture. Paul sees the riot happening, and they're all in the theater. And so Paul goes over to the theater, the place where the riot hates him, and Paul says, I want to speak to these people. This sounds like a gospel opportunity. And thank goodness for the disciples that were with him that said, um, it's not actually going to end the way you hope it is, Paul. You're going to stand before him and you're going to preach a message and they're going to kill you and celebrate it. So they actually prevented Paul from speaking to this crowd. So here's why it's important. Paul leaves Ephesus and years later pens this letter to the church in Ephesus. This was the message he wanted to share and was prohibited from sharing. And so we're going to dive in and we're going to read it together today. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have one, we have Bibles in the back as well, or you can turn it on. So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, it says, As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He was talking, people had an understanding that there were spirits in the air all around them, good and bad. So he's crafting this message in a way that they understand. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, everybody say these next two words with me, by nature, deserving of wrath. Here's what Paul wanted to communicate to the people is that your very default, the very notion, the very epitome of who you are is broken. That because of our bend and our very nature, we are full of what he calls sin. And even, I was reading a commentary this week, it's just it, people much smarter than me that articulate this deeper and provide context. What they said is sin leads to death of the soul. Whereas many people, as Paul would say, you may find life and pleasure and goodness from a, a fleshly standpoint, but that when you engage in sin, that which God lays out in his word is wrong, that this disqualifies you from a relationship actually leads to a small part of death in your soul. So Paul's laying the foundation and he's saying, here's, here's what all of you get and all of you understand. Your soul... Your heart, anytime you sin, it's as if you just you sin just a little bit. And watch what happens as the die just gets inside of your heart. When you sin, what happens is it permeates the very being of your nature. And so that the consequences of sin don't, don't bring life, even though it may feel good or it may feel life-giving. How many of you might say, uh, sin feels good? I got one hand in the back. One guy's like, it's awesome. I'm just going to tell you, it's awesome. And it is awesome. If it's not awesome, you're doing it wrong. But it's awesome for a time. 
And it's awesome for a season until you start experiencing the side effects and the consequences of sin in a different area of your life. The fleshly part says, awesome. The spiritual side says something just died. And here's the thing, we all get that. Because over time, you just add more and more and more and more and more. And it doesn't matter how much we try, how much we try to change or environments or context, it seems like we're almost wired. Like it's almost our very nature that is predisposed to sin. And what's hard about this is that we can't eradicate it once it's there. That once it's, it's been allowed in, as you can see, it takes over everything. And once was one, what was once small amount or a little about or death, just a little bit, turns into death on a macro level in ways that affects relationships, affects the outcomes of jobs, leading to being fired, leading to a divorce, leading to an addiction. Sin wreaks havoc on our souls. And what Paul is reminding them is there's nothing you can do about it. And here's the, the funny thing. I'm, I'm going to convince you of one more thing. Um, sin is not learned. It's just discovered. Um, I got a nine-month-old. And I still remember, uh, his name is Judah, I still remember the first time he didn't get what he wanted. He was just, he was probably four months, five months, didn't get something that he wanted. And so I'm watching him and I went, nope, you can't have that right now. Whether it was a bottle or the bottle ended up or something, it, it was done. And so what he does is his face changes and he starts tensing up every muscle in his body and he just goes, ah, and just screamed. And I went, that's sin nature. That's it, right there. He didn't learn that from me. Kind of reminds me of his mom. But he didn't learn it from me. Who taught my son how to do that? And what's funny is he's gotten older and older and older. And he's not even old yet. He's nine months. And yet what I see, he's got this nature that he's predisposed to losing it if he doesn't get what he wants. He's predisposed to selfishness and greed. He's predisposed to anger. He didn't learn it, but over the course of his life, he will become more aware of it and of how deep it is. This is the sin nature that Paul is talking about. I just want to give you a chance to be introspective here too. None of us need to be convinced that this is what it feels like in our hearts. Uh, I was sitting down with a mentor earlier uh, last week and I asked him how he's doing and how it's going and he said, it's going great and whatnot. And we got on the topic of grace. And what he said is, David, there is no one that will be harder on me than me. No one will rip on me like I do. No one will beat on me. And just, he's like, after this conversation, 
I'll get in my car and probably regret saying half the stuff and go, why did you say that? And that was stupid and you shouldn't have gone there. Or I'll go into a business meeting and walk out and go, I didn't need to say that or I hurt that person. And, and here's something, I relate to that statement 100%. My whole life is riddled with going into situations or conversations or relationships and walking out and feeling like all I did was add more to the mess and my heart just feels broken because of it. Because there's nothing, I, I can't undo it. I can't pull it out. I'm familiar with my own sin and my own shame and my own brokenness. And Paul is writing to a community in Ephesus who says, this is my normal. I get it. I understand. All I want is to be freed from that. And so if that means buying an idol and trying to please some God that I can't see and can't understand, then I'll do whatever it takes. But here's what Paul says right after. This is Ephesians 2 verse 4. It says, but because of his great love for us. God. What a powerful statement. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Do you notice the juxtaposition there? That even though this was us and this is our normal and we experience death and brokenness and longing for something more, even though we're broken, what God does is God comes in and brings life where there is no life. Let's keep reading. It is by, everybody say it with me, grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Can I define grace for you? Here's a simple definition of grace so that we can all be on the same page. Grace is the free and unmerited favor of God. Have you ever heard someone say, uh, that person just deserves some grace? They've been through a lot, or they've done a lot, or they're up, they just deserve some grace. Here's what's funny about it. That's a super oxymoronic phrase. Because if grace is deserved, it's not grace. Grace is a total separation from what is due. Because if someone is owed something, that's called a transaction. Grace says you are not owed, you are not due, you do not deserve, and I will give anyway. Paul is saying that, that God in his mercy sees us in this state and says, here's what they do deserve, separation, death, consequences from sin. They deserve the effect because they chose it and they picked it. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of creation when Adam and Eve disobeyed. They chose rebellion against me. And what they deserve is to see that rebellion come to fruition. But God doesn't put the period there. What God says is, although this is what they deserve, my grace and my mercy, and I love even the phrase it uses, who is rich in mercy, dad's loaded with grace, with mercy. 
And he says, I want to give to you. Not on the basis of performance, not on the basis of what you do, but because of me, because of who I am. Grace changes everything. And this is why the people of the culture hated this message, because grace now turned this gift and a relationship and freedom from what we're all used to, turned this from a business to a relationship, and the bottom line was threatened. Do you know that this is, we can track this through religions or through Christianity as it's developed even over the years since Jesus. What we can see is how governments were threatened, how religious entities were threatened, how organizations and divisions of power, because now what it says is all of a sudden the poor and the rich are the same because neither one deserves but they can both receive, they're the same. Now what it says is uh, lost or broken or whatever you've done in the past versus one who's lived a relatively good life become the same. Now it changes from those in religious order and those who have authority, authority given by man to speak or, or to lead. What it says is, no, 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 now slaves and free are all the same. It turned the hierarchies that existed in our world up on its head because this gift was given for free. So let me ask you this question. Why did Paul write this to Ephesus? Paul wrote this to Ephesus because it was an image-based culture that focused on performance and tried to modify and manage behavior. What would you say if I told you we live in Ephesus? That Ephesus may not be a place anymore. It's ruins Nobody lives there anymore. They're excavating it. But you and I live in Ephesus, and it's not a location. You can't find it on a map. And it's not even, like some of you might say, it's, it's Grand Rapids, you know, or it's the U.S. It's this. It's the Internet. I want you to think about this through the lens here of Paul writing this to the Ephesians for a second, that our culture and our world is no longer bound by physical things. It's connected virtually. And the society that exists online is a society that focuses on image of what we want people to see. Not the way we are, but of the way that we wish we were. And it's focused on behavior and what I can do, and look at what I did. And it's focused on fame and popularity and this, just like a, a city center, this connects all major aspects. Think about it, business, social interaction, sex, commerce, trade, government, power, everything happens in this world. And so just as Paul would be writing to a community, to a city that struggles with image and perfection and behavior, he is also writing it to us who live in the same culture. It's amazing. 
many of us get this. I don't have to convince you that this is what it may feel like in your heart. Right? Purpose of a message isn't to point you to the flaws and the brokenness and to the mire and muck of your own heart. Because just like that mentor told me, no one's more familiar with it than us. But here's the thing about sin and brokenness is oftentimes this is so heavy and so weighty in our own souls that it clouds our ability to see it in other people. Sometimes we play the sin management game and we look at us and we go, well, that stinks. But at least it's not as dark as the person next to me. At least I'm doing better than my spouse, amen? At least it's better than my neighbor. It's certainly better than my boss, come on. But then we run into someone who looks a lot better still not perfect, it's not whole, it's not created the way it was, but we play this comparison game. And we feel better based on what we see from other people, and we feel worse based on what we see from others. But here's a question I just want you to ask to think for a second. Is there someone in your life whose life looks like this? That they're just broken. That they just feel the weight of sin. Could it be a spouse? Could it be a child? Could it be a boss or a coworker? You see, this, when we live in this world, and if this is all we can see, it's depressing because there's nothing we can do to remove it ourselves. So Paul writes this, Ephesians 2, verse 8, and he says, for it is by grace, everyone say grace, grace, that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works, not by anything you do, not by performance modification, not by getting better at managing your sin, not by any works that you do so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork. Even when we look at ourselves and see this and brokenness and you go, God, you screwed up on this one. I don't know how I can do anything in this life. I don't know how you could use me at all. I, I just can't get over my own stuff. How, how in the world are you going to help me other people get over theirs? God, I, I can't. And God says, no, no, no. You are my handiwork. My masterpiece. You are art to me because you're created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do the difference when we have a relationship with Jesus is that when Jesus comes into our heart the rest dissolves The brokenness and the mire and the pain and the longing 
begins to soften. And what we once saw is dark, stained, broken, unredeemable. Jesus says, I'm just getting started. This is what a relationship with him looks like. Some of you may say, I get it, I get it. I've invited Jesus into my heart, but what happens if I still sin? What happens if I still struggle? You wanna see? Here's this, I'm still sinning. I'm still struggling. God, I'm fighting. I wanna be for you. I want you to live in me and look at how sin has nothing to grab onto. Because Jesus so overwhelms our hearts and our souls. And he says, the grace that I came to give you is yours to claim nothing has power over that. This is the message of Jesus that Paul preached to the city of Ephesus that changed everything. Wow. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. But I want to tell you a story about a little girl named Emma. Emma grew up in the foster care system, uh, well acquainted with being at different homes, kind of bouncing around. She got removed from her home when she was young. And what Emma longed for more than anything her entire life was to be in a family that loved her. That's just what she wanted, right? She, she talked to friends at school who, who would have sleepovers and, you know, they would have friends over and they would do makeup and hair and they would watch movies and stuff. Emma didn't have that because Emma was never in a place long enough to have friends to do stuff like that with. So she was longing, but Emma finally got hope one day that there was a family that said, hey, we're interested in adopting little Emma. And so they take Emma in and they go through the paperwork and they go through the legal system and Emma becomes a part of their family. But here's what happened is about a year into this new family, the family said, we're gonna go on vacation as a family and we're gonna go to Disney World and Emma just starts lighting up because this was like the one thing that she wanted her entire life was to go to Disney and to see Mickey, right? Just like the rest of our dreams, amen? Amen, not at all. So Emma gets in and she's so excited and she's, it's like coming up, the weeks are getting shorter and shorter, the days are getting shorter and shorter and then mom and dad sit her down and they say, Emma, you have been kind of misbehaving recently and so we're gonna have to go on this trip without you this year. You have to stay back. Crushed by the way she treated her siblings. Crushed by the ways that she lied. She went with a family friend and the family went off to Disney and she only heard about it through pictures after. Well, the hard part is this happened year after year after year. And no shocker here, things didn't go well in the family and the family eventually said, we want to put her back up for adoption. And another family comes along, a Christian family that takes her in and after hearing this story a couple months later, the family decides we're gonna go on vacation to Disney World because we have this little girl who's always dreamt of going and never had the opportunity to go. And so they announced that they said, we're going to Disney World in a month. And the kids were all excited. They hadn't been there before. And Emma had a weird response. And over the course of the next month, Emma's behavior got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And she finally sat down when her parents sat her on their lap and they said, what is going on? And she said, I know what's going to happen. You're going to make me stay home from Disney. 
and her parents feel the weight of this little girl's emotions inside of her because she said, I know I can't earn my way there, so I'm going to do everything I can to prevent myself to even get close so that I can demolish all hope of ever going so that I don't have to experience the rejection or lack of hope. And her parents said, although tempting, they said, you're still going. And they hoped it would get better and it got worse up until the day they left. They got in the car and they drove to the airport and they flew down and they went to Disney and they ate the overpriced food and they met Mickey and they spent way too much money, just like many of us. And Emma curls up in her dad's lap, gives him a hug and says, thank you for taking me. And her dad takes advantage of the opportunity to give her the gift of understanding grace. And he said, honey, you didn't earn this. You are here because you are a part of our family. And nothing you do can change that. Friends, you need to hear the same message that you have been forgiven and that you have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Not because of anything you've done, but because of who you are as a child of God. Can I get an amen or something on that? I love this statement. It says, grace acknowledges the full implication of sin and still does not condemn. This is the message of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? Who in your life is living condemned that needs grace? It may start with you, but there are others in your in your circumference. What a word. In your context, in your neighborhood, in your classrooms that need this relationship. Let me close by reading this. This is Ephesians 4, verse 1 through 7. It says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love and make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, say it with me, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. God, we are so grateful for your life-saving grace. God, we know we need you. We know we're not enough. God, so many of us, we try and we try and we try and we try again, and we never give ourselves the gift of grace like you've given us. Father, I just pray through your spirit right now that you would just be present and in this place, and you would stir in the hearts of your people who feel dirty, who feel broken, who feel captivated 
by death. God set them free. Set me free. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you for the gift of your son Jesus that gives us that freedom so that we never again have to be held in the bondage of sin. God, we love you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen.